0: You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California.
1: So as Max and Bob are saying, today is the second Sunday of Advent, and as such, on the traditional church calendar, that means that today's theme is peace. And a few weeks ago in one of my talks, I mentioned kind of off the cuff that I no longer believe, and I haven't believed in a long time, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And Jen was like, where is Jen? Oh, there she is. Jen was like in the Q&A portion. For those of you who don't know, who are new here, after every talk on a Sunday morning, we open up for discussion. It's kind of a radical thing. You get to question the pastor. You get to disagree you get to say you get to raise you know your hand or your voice and and uh make comments and questions or anyway so jen was like what did you mean by that you no longer believe jesus died on the cross for our sins and i was like and i tried to give a quick explanation but i realized in my giving of that answer this was a much longer conversation that we needed to have and actually today being the second sunday of advent and the theme being peace i thought actually it's an appropriate time for for us to address this um because, the, because, you know, what I want to address today is what is the peace of Christ? What do we mean when we talk about the peace of Jesus or the peace that he signified, the peace that he brought into our world? What was his peace? And there's different directions we can go with that. But often it's been understood as a peace Jesus established between us and God, that we were the enemies of God because of sin and jesus came to make us right with god to make us at peace with god in fact that word atonement means at one to make at one again uh, and so traditionally uh the incarnation the nativity jesus is coming into the world has been understood as him making us at peace with god by becoming a sacrifice a blood atonement sacrifice for us on the cross, etc. I'm sure you've heard some of this before, church. Most of us were raised with this theology, this atonement theory, as it's known. And I, so I want to talk about that today. Jen raised a really good question. Uh, so yeah, let's get into it a little bit. Um The idea, again, is that Jesus came to sacrifice himself as the ultimate sin offering in order to establish peace between us and God, which in turn, we're told, would result in our salvation and eternal life in heaven. Uh, But that is not how I understand the cross now. That's not what I preach or teach, and I haven't done so for a while. Part of deconstruction for me has meant the deconstruction of these ancient ideas of ritual sacrifice, blood magic, and scapegoating. Many cultures, including the ancient Israelites, believed in the power of ritual sacrifice to appease their deity or atone for their wrongdoings. Why was that? Well, it was commonly believed in many ancient religions and spiritual traditions around the world that the blood of an animal or the blood of a person possessed its life power or some kind of magical property that made life possible by sacrificing them by shedding their blood that blood magic or life power could be harnessed released or used to appease a deity who in turn the thinking was would make your crops grow, make your livestock reproduce, protect you from foreign invasion, um, or otherwise control the chaotic forces of nature, the rains, the sun, etc cetera, so that you or your community could thrive, survive, and prosper. That was the thinking of it, behind it, not just with the Israelites. We find this thinking common in the ancient world, across history, across culture, time, space, here on earth, human history. In particular within the Hebrew the Hebrew tradition was also this idea of a scapegoat, which was literally a goat that the high priest once a year would take, lay his hands on its head, pronounce over it the sins of the nation, and then have an acolyte or an assistant take that animal, that goat, out into the out into the wilderness, the desert, and just leave it there. The message being, so God has removed our sins far away from us, never to be seen again. God has driven them out into oblivion. Simultaneously, the high priest would take another goat or a lamb and slaughter it, sacrifice it as further atonement for the nation's sins. This is where we get the term scapegoat from. You've all heard whether you've ever stepped foot in church before, the term scapegoat, yes? That's where this comes from. It shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that some early Christians, some, many, who were Jews, right? All early Christians, the first century Christians, at least the first decade after Christ, they were all, they were all Jews. Christianity began as a is a sect within first century judaism, right? It shouldn't surprise us that they some of them translated Jesus's death into this historical, cultural and religious framework. He was seen as the ultimate scapegoat by some. His bloody death was seen as many by many as the ultimate ritual sacrifice that atoned for our sins once and for all. You've heard this before but that's not only but that's not the only traditional christian understanding of the cross to be clear that atonement theory there are other and better understandings and i'll get to those here this morning but it's important to understand first that the view i just shared was rooted not in divine revelation i dare say but in the historical and cultural context of the ancient near east In other words, the fact is, Israel did not invent this idea of ritual sacrifice, blood magic, and scapegoating. They did not invent it. They got it from their neighbors, namely the Canaanites, who long before Israel existed were sacrificing animals and even people to Baal and other deities. The Israelites just imported and syncretized syncretized these practices and ideas within their own cult, within their own religion. It's also important to understand the psychological origins of ritual sacrifice and scapegoating and why such ideas are ubiquitous. Again, across history, across cultures, you find the Aztecs doing, them, doing ritual sacrifice, you find the, the ancient Egyptians, the Canaanites, everybody was doing it. Why? Well, there's a psychological thing going on here. Ritual sacrifice was a coping mechanism. This is how we define it today in psychological terms. It was a coping mechanism, a way of coping with the fear of death and the sense of powerlessness and terror that comes from being aware of our mortality and just how exposed we are to the chaotic forces of nature. Imagine living at a time whereby if the next storm that could come could wipe out your entire food supply, could wipe out your entire village if the river flooded, a pestilence, a disease, a plague could crop up and wipe out half of your community. No healthcare back then, right? No modern medicine. You were utterly exposed to starvation, all the time and, and and even getting preyed upon by, uh, by animals. You know, you were exposed. It, we, it's hard for us to relate to the pre-modern world in this way, but consider the anxiety, the 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 internal antagonisms within that community, the anxiety, the fear, the sense of constant existential threat, right. So ritual sacrifice was a way of, of coping with that. practicing magic. This ritual sacrifice should be understood as magic. Practicing magic, particularly blood magic, was a way of gaining a sense of control over what was fundamentally uncontrollable, namely nature and and death. The sacrificed animal or person embodied, we would say, the existential dread, the anxieties, and antagonisms of the community. Therefore, by killing or scapegoating them, a sense of temporary well-being or peace could be obtained. In other words, we humans have always felt the need to project our sufferings, our fears, our antagonisms, our anxieties on some surrogate. We've always felt this need. Some surrogate that we can sacrifice or do away with in the hopes of doing away with our problems and finding peace as a result. This need to scapegoat, again, it is a universal human behavior and a behavior that exists even in the modern world. Consider the 20th century. Consider the Nazis with the Jews. The Nazis scapegoated the Jews by believing that they were the source of Germany's societal ills in the 1920s and 30s, yes? The Nazis got their entire nation to believe that The economy, the political problems, the economic problems, the cultural problems they were facing as a nation were primarily due to Judaism or or the presence of the Jewish people and their activities in their society. The thinking was, by oppressing and killing them, Germany believed they could rid themselves of their societal ills that, of course, had nothing to do with the Jews, but they got everybody to believe that. This is scapegoating, and we see, similar, we see a similar scapegoat mechanism today among evangelicals in this country. Many of us are quite familiar with the scapegoating that takes place. The thinking is, if only we got rid of gay marriage, if only if we got rid of abortion, then God would bless our nation again. What's standing in the way of our greatness as a nation are the gays, or abortion, or the secular left, or the atheists, or whatever. We're told if only we banned certain books, we banned critical race theory, then God would make America great again. (laughs) Right? It's the red hat. Scapegoating. This is scapegoating, particularly the scapegoating of brown and black bodies and the bodies of gay and queer folk. And it's a timeless and universal human reaction because it's a way. To avoid a painful confrontation with reality, a painful confrontation with the truth that maybe our problems, both individually and collectively, are our own fault. Or maybe our societal problems are so complex that the solutions are really hard to know and to implement. Or maybe we can't solve our problems and we have to learn to live with them. We have to learn maybe to live with the tensions and the difficulties that we're faced with. It's so much easier to scapegoat something or someone rather than to face painful and scary truths about ourselves or the world. And so these are the historical and psychological roots of ritual sacrifice and scapegoating. And it's because I understand all this that I can no longer believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins as an atoning sacrifice. And to be clear, I think there's something really kind of toxic and dangerous about that belief, actually. Such an idea makes God into this violent and and toxic being And thereby makes us into a violent and toxic being. The fact is, we are a reflection of the God or the gods we believe in and vice versa. It's always been this way. I think the reason why sexual, physical, and emotional abuse thrives in many evangelical circles is because of this innate belief in the redemptive power of violence, the redemptive power of scapegoating, the redemptive power of ritual sacrifice and bloodshed, the redemptive power of subjugating others and taking away their consent and autonomy, the redemptive power of coercion and force, the redemptive power of authoritarian hierarchies and authoritarian God who demands bloodshed and sacrifice sometimes in order to be appeased. There's something really kind of toxic and violent about all that. And communities that believe in those things tend to be kind of toxic and violent themselves. Yes? We've seen it. We grew up in it. We know it. We are always a reflection of the God we believe in and vice versa. So all this is why I don't believe, this is all a way of saying why, I don't believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but I believe he died because of our sin. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, Jesus spoke out and fought against the sinful rulers and authorities of his day that oppressed people. And for this, he died. He died because he refused to look the other way while people suffered. It's like the words of the great 20th century German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who knows something about sacrifice and laying his life down for others. Bonhoeffer once said this silence in the face of great evil is itself evil. He died in a Nazi prison. Silence in the face of great evil is itself evil. To do nothing is to do something. Passivity is actually an action. Jesus refused to commit the sin of silence and passivity. He refused to do nothing in the face of evil. Love would not let him turn away, and he paid the ultimate price for it. This is why I think Jesus says in John 15, no one has greater love than this. There is no greater love than this, than to lay your life down for another. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's exactly what he did. The gospel and the cross are about a man dying for his friends, even for his enemies, actually. Dying because he refused to look the other way while they were being harmed by the powers that be. But Jesus' death represents more than just a good man dying for a good cause. Many people have done that over the years. But Jesus represents, at least for us Christians, Jesus represents in some way God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Advent is all about, right? Therefore, his death represents, we would say, a divine no, To oppression and injustice. His death represents a divine no to hypocrisy, a divine no to greed, a divine no to selfishness and bigotry. You don't get a bigger no than that. The death of God represents a divine no to those things and a divine yes to justice, to peace for the poor and the powerless, to liberation to emancipation. His death was also a divine yes to these things. So in a way, you, you could say, I'm, I am saying in a way that Jesus died for our sins, as long as it's nuanced this way. But I think it's clearer to say he died because of our sins. And I think by saying it that way, we're not diminishing at all. We're not diminishing it at all. We're we're still affirming it as redemptive and and liberating. And I think we're actually making it more meaningful and more powerful this way because we're locating it, Jesus' death, in the real world. And we're making it about love and compassion and peacemaking rather than about these abstract supernatural concepts like atonement and blood magic and scapegoating, which nobody really understands anyway. And to be clear, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually outside church tradition here this morning. This is actually not heresy. Not that there's anything wrong with heresy, right? <laughs> right? We're all for heresy here, but this is actually not heresy, this view I'm espousing. The view I'm espousing is actually one of a handful of traditional Christian understandings of the cross. The one I'm espousing actually has a name to it. It's called moral influence theory. Not that you need to know that. There's not going to be a quiz after service. (laughs) But this actually has a term. It's it's called moral influence theory. And moral influence theory basically means that the story of Jesus' death and resurrection is meant to influence us morally. It teaches us to live as Christ in the sacrificial and loving way he did, to participate with him on the cross Means to lay down our lives for the cause of love and justice and peacemaking as he did. It means to go to the end of ourselves for others, to be a person for others. That's basically moral influence theory and that understanding of the cross. But to me, to participate with Christ on the cross, and I'll finish with this. For me, To participate with Christ on the cross and to share in his sufferings also means to embrace the frailty and the temporality of our lives the way he did. To make peace with suffering and affirm this life and this world in all of its frailty as good, as beautiful, meaningful, sacred, and holy. Jesus in everything he said and did by loving and affirming and including the outcast. You know, he was loving and affirming the, the weak and the powerless. He was, in, in, in essence, affirming and blessing and calling sacred the temporal, the frail aspects of this life and this world, our lives. This is also what I think it means to believe in the saving and emancipatory power of Jesus' death. And it flows really well with our Advent theme of peace today. This, to me, is the peace of Christ. Let us meditate on that now as we receive the Lord's Supper. And uh, here at Central, this is an open table. All are welcome to partake. Um, And the way that we do this is we serve each other. Holy Communion. In other words, you serve the person next to you and you just take one of these gluten-free crackers, you dip it in the cup, you receive it and then you serve the person next to you. We believe this is um symbolic of what it means for us to be Christ for each other. We bring Christ to each other, each of us. So let us partake in that now as Max and the team leads us.
0: Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here is this week's unedited discussion.
1: Thanks guys. Beautiful. So questions, comments, complaints. That's cool too. Um, yeah, I said a lot today. It's kind of like a seminary class per huge. but uh, yeah, I want to I have a discussion question too. I guess I could throw out there if nobody has any questions or comments about the talk itself. but um, you know I always want to be able to hear what does the cross? What does Jesus' death or the incarnation his nativity, what does that mean for you? How has that changed in meaning for you um, over your journey, this crazy little journey of deconstruction and reconstruction? But all that goes, questions, comments about the talk, what does Jesus's death mean for you? Yeah, uh, Jesse, let me see if this mic works today. Hello. Oh, actually, this one sounds better than mine. Check, check, check. Okay.
2: Um, So a lot of things are coming up as you're talking Um, one of the things that struck me was not only the perpetuation of abuse in Christian context because of violence, but because of patriarchy and control, Mm. but also because of the negation of self. And I think that negation of self really is central in the reimagined notions of the cross because in a reimagined notion of the cross you, there is a fully consensual willingness of christ to surrender oneself to the good of the other and i yeah. think when we're talking about healthy constructs in reimagining or not reimagining because i think there is a sense of that in historic christianity although it's yes very hidden um this notion that we we have to have a full self that's consensual and that's aware in a way that evangelicalism has sought to destroy over the last 150 years to be willing to make the choice to surrender it on behalf of the other and if a self that is not fully autonomous and self-aware is being demanded to surrender oneself as a sacrifice then you are a scapegoat sacrifice you are not a willing sacrifice in the embodiment of Christ. Yeah,
1: that's really interesting. I I hear you talking about how so many of us were taught to, you know, let go of consent and autonomy and, and in essence to just, you know, submit 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 to these authoritarian structures that were inherently oppressive and controlling and that that was somehow our Christian duty to um and and that allowed us you know to be violated and exploited and become victims of various kinds of violence it could be physical could be sexual a lot of it was spiritual and emotional too right that's that's what i hear you saying yeah
2: absolutely i mean i think it it origins from childhood right dobson is a huge advocate of negating the child and their autonomy and their voice And even, you know, I don't know if anybody else had this experience, but being raised around missionaries, it was always like, I was sent on the mission field because that's the last thing I wanted to do. Well, if that's the last thing you want to do, then you shouldn't be on the mission field. Yeah. Um, and so this notion that anything God wanted you, because your heart is deceitful above all things and that verse is so misapplied right. that you, anything you want with your whole heart is evil. And, and that from that origin negates the desire, negates ne- desire and consent and all of the self-awareness that we developmentally learn. Um, and it makes it easier to, to control people. Yeah.
1: And this is especially true for women in the church.
2: Ab- or anybody who's non straight white male, but right. I think it's not a straight white males get harmed in that structure too, because yeah. then there's this sense of you have to be domineering and you have to have authority right. and you lose your ability to connect with your emotions and your care. You know, Leon sent me a TikTok t- yesterday of um a woman saying you know who do you talk to when you're most vulnerable and every other person on that tiktok was a man saying i don't talk to anybody i don't deal with my emotions and that's the core of toxic masculinity that patriarchal white christianity has presented throughout the world
1: totally a oh, really good comment thank you for bringing that up somebody want to respond to that or have a different comment or question or uh yeah steve well how convenient you're right next to it <laughs>
0: N- not a response, but a, a, a different thought on uh, discussing the atonement. Yeah. Um, uh, two. Two. Di- I think. I think two primary thoughts. Uh, one is I think that this is when when talking.
3: There you go. It's okay. I think when,
0: when talking to people.
1: Hang on, just use my mic. <laughs> ah, great, Max. Would you mind? Um, thank you.
0: So yeah, I think when when talking to people about how I view the the cross at this point, this is essentially what I'm describing. And a lot of the reaction I feel like I get is like, well, yeah, but that's not, you know, but there's more, right? Like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he came to like, tell, you know, to, to tell us how to be good and how to live a good life. But then there's the other stuff also that you're leaving out. Um, but I also think that I... I think I've talked about this before, but this is sort of where my theology has uh, has arisen to. I'm very agnostic most days in um, my view of uh, of the divine, and so a lot of it is like, well, there's a baseline, and the baseline is this is what the death of Jesus does this is what jesus is here to do is the the to sort of teach us this morality and to to model life and to to give us a a place to look at for how to treat ourselves and others and then if you choose to ascribe something beyond that to the divine you can that sort of like is an add-on you know that that does something else but at very least we can sort of find this ground and i think that that's that sort of is how I've come to view prayer and how I've come to view like so many things of my faith. They're like, yes, there's this sort of like baseline of what we're, what I'm talking about, how how I view. And some days I wake up and I go, well, maybe there's a little bit more to that as well. And, but, but often, yeah, but then some days I wake up and I go, well, there's still this sort of moral influence of what this is doing. And I think that that's a lot of the reason why I keep coming back to scripture and to jesus and to to my faith is because there's kind of always this base ground that i can sort of look to or, or build upon if that makes sense
1: no it totally does and i i don't always me personally and i want to invite others to think of it thank you for that you know for me personally i i feel like you know the the, the so-called moral lessons of christ that we're talking about here but how to live in right relationship to others and to give ourselves over to love and to life in the world can actually be, I think, a very mystical experience. It doesn't have to be just kind of like this cold methodical this is just you know what I do now in order to be a good person. Like that itself, I think, can be infused with a sense of mystery and awe and divinity and beauty and depth and a kind of mysticism, you know, giving ourselves over to love and life in the world and, and a sense of giving ourselves, emptying ourselves of selfish and as much as we can of selfishness you know there's something i think um i don't know just really deep and, and almost kind of mystical about it. at least for the way i'm feeling about it um thinking about it But yeah that's really good i
0: think that's kind of what i mean some days i wake up and yeah. i feel mystical yeah. and some days i wake up and i don't no, I, yeah, and that's, that's sort of the ground
1: that. yeah <laughs> that's good stuff somebody else is morning yeah jen i'm glad you're gonna respond because this was entirely your idea <laughs>
3: So I think that, um, I think that thinking about Jesus, the person of Jesus in this way of almost more like a martyr, you, you know, like the using that word kind of helps me understand, I think what you're communicating, because it puts it, it, puts it into a context that I understand. Um, and I think that in a way it makes this idea of Jesus, a lot more relatable, you know, In like, you know, he didn't come to like save us from our sins. He came to help people and love people and was murdered because of it. So I think that's a lot more relatable, especially for people who are, you know, working in social justice and working against, um, you know, the evil that is in the world. And I think it can also be used as a really interesting kind of, I don't know, I was thinking about this, this idea of like, everything happens for a reason and how that's really toxic and not true. And this can be used as an interesting example of, of redemption of like, I don't think God sent his son to die specifically. I don't know that that was his plan, you know, but he sure redeemed it. You know, that's what happened. And now here we all are, you know, 2000 or however many years later, still talking about it. So I think it's a really good example of how really bad, terrible things can be redeemed into something life-giving and loving and good. So,
1: thank you. That's really good. You know, in a sense, um, I think the whole idea of of us being the body of Christ and embodying Christ today is based upon keeping his the memory of his sacrifice alive in in us and in our community. You know, that's a big part of what it means to be the church is to embody that. Uh, that's really good, John. Thank you. Yeah. Um, somebody else. Yeah. Anna.
4: Um, Just going along with what you said in the message, I think I first heard kind of that framework, and I want to say it was Richard Rohr's book, Universal Christ, and it's like God doesn't demand a sacrifice. It's our human, like humans who demand the sacrifice to alleviate our suffering, and I remember reading that, and it was such a foreign concept because growing up, like God can't look upon sin. And I never got that because I'm like, I can do anything she wants. Like, I can do whatever. So don't say God can't look on all, sin. Things
1: are possible. So jot that down.
4: Right. Right. So there's that. And also, you know, Jesus was perfect and like had to be sacrificed because couldn't be with our sin. I'm like, but he's with sinners all the time. And so that really helps thinking, yeah, in our humanity, it's, It's we who create the violence, how, you know, you said in every culture, that blood sacrifice. So yeah, it's a very, it's much more compassionate view of God that I found like, oh, God, God didn't demand any sacrifice, but Jesus kind of as a human laid down his life and just basically gave us what we were, what we, what those folks were demanding, um, their sense of justice to elite and like to help us in our own understanding of justice. He did that, um and also all the other lessons.
1: Yeah, no, that's really good. And I think Richard Rohr in that book is actually getting that from René Girard, uh, who was a French philosopher, theologian, social critic uh, of the 20th century, who basically argued uh, that Jesus's death wasn't this idea of atonement, but his sacrifice was the sacrifice of sacrifice itself, the death of sacrifice itself, the, the whole idea. Of God's son, the Messiah dying. I mean, it was preposterous. It was absurd. It was nonsensical. And it was meant to make the idea of sacrifice itself nonsensical to demonstrate, you know, as actually early Christians would, you know, the book of Hebrews said, you know, the blood of bulls and goats could never, it was impossible for the, for blood atonement rituals to ever atone for sin. And, and the cross is understood as the ultimate repudiation. Rohr was, I think, saying this, and Girard was as well, that the cross function is the ultimate repudiation of the idea of blood magic, that God demands blood in order to love and forgive us and accept us. The, the, the absurdity, the nonsensical, the incomprehensible idea of Christ crucified was the actual ultimate repudiation of the whole ritual sacrifice system. And of course, if you read Paul, Paul you know, is confusing as hell. But Paul will actually, even, you know, he'll sometimes sound like he's arguing that, oh, no, but his blood satisfied the wrath of God. And you still find that atonement ritual language in there because, again, these were people working out these ideas, trying to understand and contextualize Jesus's death in their first century Hebrew Jewish context. So you still find that. And I'm not trying to say it's not in there, but other Christians have always understood it differently as the death of the whole idea that God could ever be appeased. By the blood of bulls and goats or human sacrifice the whole that whole idea was rejected in the death of christ anyway that's what roar i think is getting at he's getting that from another guy named renee Girard. i'm just I'm just trying to help everyone understand the context but thank you for bringing that up um other other thoughts about this what does the death of christ mean for you Yeah, well, good conversation. Awesome. Let's uh, conclude with our benediction. And uh, we do say this together, if you will. Let's say it together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen.